0: Bonjour, bonjour, and welcome to another episode of EveryoneHatesMarketers.com, the no-fluff actionable marketing podcast for people who are sick of shady, aggressive marketing. I'm your host, Louis Cornier. In today's episode, you learn how to pitch stuff to publishers and journalists that they actually want to receive. Um, my guest today is an experienced growth and content marketing specialist. She's a marketing director at Practal, which is a content marketing agency based in the US. She's been a writer, senior writer, editor. She knows her ways around words. And today, as I said, we're going to talk about pitching stuff to journalists. Amanda Milligan, welcome aboard.
1: Thank you for having me, Louis. I appreciate it.
0: Thank you for calling me, Louis. Um, <laughs> the before we started recording, it's, it's, it's nice to be acknowledged for my nationality. Um, <laughs> anyway, the topic at hand is pitching stuff to publishers, journalists, what is being called digital PR, digital public relations, right? So maybe you can take a step back and just briefly describe the field of digital PR. What does it even mean?
1: That's a great question. We actually had to do a project on this recently surveying what everybody thought it meant. I think this happens in marketing a lot where a term has different definitions to different people. The way that we consider it is basically reaching out to writers as you would in traditional PR, but online, right? So you're not always doing the same type. And some people would still consider pitching press releases to be digital PR. But what we do at Fractal is more coming up with our own newsworthy content and pitching that to writers. So, so we work with a specific subset of digital PR that we think is the most effective. So you're coming up with something newsworthy, and I'll talk more about that because that's an important piece of this. And you're pitching it because you know it's going to be interesting to their audiences. So you're sending them emails that are crafted in a very particular way that explain, this is awesome, your audience is going to really value it, and it's available to you if you want to cover it.
0: And what's in it for you? What does it mean to me? What What's in it for you, like as the company? Because you don't do that just for the, the sake of it, for the, <laughs> the, you know.
1: Yeah. So... What, the reason we do this for our clients, and actually, we do it for ourselves. I do the same, same thing in marketing agency as we do for our clients. And you get a lot of value out of this tactic. First of all, and a lot of the reason it's really appealing to people is you get backlinks. And not just any backlinks, you get really high value backlinks from really good publishers that are sometimes no follow, but there's a whole debate around that and the value of that as well. We find it valuable. So you get the backlinks, but then you also get brand awareness. And you start building your authority, too, because the way that you're mentioned in these news stories is different from other ways. It'll say, like, a study done by this brand or research done by this brand. So you're also positioning yourself in a specific way. So there are a lot of really good benefits that that come out of it. And the more you do it, the more those benefits compound.
0: Okay, backlinks for search engine optimization for SEO in particular. So basically... Google in particular, I mean, any search engine, but Google is the biggest by a long mile, they still use backlink as a as a signal to understand whether a piece is valuable or not. And the reason why they still do it in 2020 and likely to do it for years and years is because it's fucking difficult to get backlinks, it, right?
1: Exactly. Yes. It's very, that's why people hire us. It's You can't just be a one-person team. Like, I'm going to just get some backlinks from USA Today. It is really tough. And you're absolutely right. It's tough for a reason. There's Sites when they link to you are basically saying that we trust what they're saying, and that kind of validation is what Google relies on to get a sense of how authoritative you are.
0: So backlinks is one thing, and then yeah, the social proof, the authority is another. Like you associate yourself with with a brand that is bigger, that is known, and by by association, then you you become more trusted. But the the downside of, of it, when I've seen that happening multiple times, is that you could, I wouldn't call it, it's not guest posting. So you're not posting on another site, but so people mention you, do you see a lot of traffic coming from, from, from pieces like this, or is it more like a authority play? Like, do you see traffic? People actually clicking on links.
1: That's a great question. Uh, it's, this is the, the answer everybody hates, but it varies I, even just for the mar- the marketing work we do. Like we pitch marketing, content to different marketing publishers will definitely get referral traffic from that specific piece so yes a lot of the time you will see a spike in traffic but it's not long lasting because it's just from people seeing the article and clicking through however it is a longer term brand play and it is a longer term link play because you don't just want to build a bunch of links in one week and then never build links again that's not sending the right message to Google, like, yeah, we cared for about a week to do things that people liked, and then we stopped. (laughs) Now we don't know if we're We're trustworthy trustworthy. anymore. So while you you won't do a project and then suddenly your organic traffic is now, you know, it's risen and will continue to for months, you continue doing it and you're sending the sign that, okay, you're continuing to do this. People are still talking about you on an ongoing basis. That's when you start to see like I said, the work compounds. And that's when you start to see organic traffic continuously rise.
0: Okay, so building basically value consistently, like showing up, which is, I I think, one of the first principles of marketing in general, but that's applied to digital PR. Like you need to show up consistently for years and years and years. And Google, like any search engine, would value that. They recognize that in their black box algorithm, which makes sense. So so to go back, backlinks is one thing. Uh, Authority, brand play is another so to go into the the psychology of it by brand play we mean we build memory structures in people's brain they see your they see your name maybe for the first time or not but they they it refreshes their memory or create a new memory structure they associate you with something and the next time they might think about buying whatever you're selling they might think of you first but it's it's not a one-time thing as you said it takes years months to work out but it compounds as you said so that's good any other? benefit outside of those two?
1: When you start doing this kind of work, you build relationships with writers as well. So the more you get into it, the the more that you have those connections that will make it a little easier later on. So that's not an external benefit, but it is a benefit to starting to do this the right way. You'll you'll start to see that you're actually forming relationships with people and and helping them. Which
0: is crazy. That's a crazy new concept for a lot of folks. <laughs> I know. No, I'm being I'm being sarcastic, obviously, but yeah, it is. That's what marketing is about. I mean, it's marketing, markets, uh, it's the people behind it, and yeah. So you can you build you build relations relationship with with writers, journalists, and it gets easier and easier. As you said, it compounds as well. Oh, that's a great and it's another great benefit. So so that's why we need to pitch, right? Pitching stuff. Now, it's not for everyone. This kind of tactic, as you said, it's not a, a strategy per se. It's a tactic that is part of a bigger picture, which is like SEO slash content marketing. From your experience, what are the type of companies or even individuals who benefit the most from this tactic?
1: It can really range. Like We've worked with startups who need the media as soon as possible because nobody knows who they are. So they want to get their name out there and say, we are a player in this space now. People care about what we have to say. But then you have the bigger names or even mid-tier businesses who have competitors who are outranking them constantly. And a lot of it has to do with basically what channels are you getting your customers from or want to. So if it's search, this really is going to be a huge benefit for you. Now, if you're only getting attention on social or email and that's working for you and you don't want to expand, like, yeah, it might not be necessarily worth it to you. But if you're somebody who's looking at the search results and thinking, why is my competitor constantly outranking me? Why are people choosing them over us? A lot of it can come down to exactly what you said. They don't even know that you're a viable option, or they're not seeing you as an answer to their questions when they search for things. So any a lot of different companies can fall in that bucket. Like I said, brand new companies, huge companies who are still trying to beat out their major competitors. If you're trying to battle in the SERPs, then this is something that you should look into.
0: And this, I think, is a great way to describe like your market, right? You don't, as for your agency, you don't necessarily go after specific industries or firmographics. What matters is more the psychographic of the desires to like to beat the competition to show up in search. And it doesn't really matter the industry, right? It's about what they want to achieve, which is interesting. So, okay. And in terms of, We're talking about a tactic here, and I don't really like talking about tactics that might go away in six months because I want this podcast to be kind of evergreen and and people listening to this uh, in five years will still get value out of it. So do you think people would still use this tactic, this channel in the next five years or 10 years? Yes,
1: I might sound biased, but... (laughs) Fractal, yeah. Fractal started in 2012 and that this has been our bread and butter since then. And because we saw that need and it was working for the company and when it comes down to it, basically all we're talking about because content's not going to go away. And basically all we're talking about is how do you communicate to somebody that they're going to be interested in what you created. I mean, this is, you're going to be promoting content for the rest of time. The content might change, what people want is going to change, all of those things will change, but being able to communicate in a more human way and also to convey your points very succinctly and tell them exactly why they want it or want to talk about it, I can't see that really going away.
0: Okay. So it's not going to go away. And therefore, if you're listening to this episode, you'll get value out of it now and, and in the next uh, years to come. So let's go into kind of a step-by-step method to actually pitch something that people would care about. And it feels like half the battle, or even more than half the battle, is actually having something worth pitching.
1: That's absolutely um, right, yes.
0: All right. So I don't know if we'll have enough time to go in details about this, as well as how to pitch it, but it feels like if we go enough in detail about the product we are pitching. By product, I don't necessarily mean a physical product, or like it could be anything. Like you know that we pitch could be a study, a survey, whatever. I think once once we cover that well, the rest kind of should follow quite easily, right? Once you have something nice, it's kind of easier to pitch something. You, yeah, you it, right?
1: can't. No amount of promotion is going to salvage a bad piece of content. Like, you can be the best promotions right. person ever, but if your content sucks, like, nobody's gonna want it. They're gonna be like, cool pitch, but yeah, no, I'm gonna pass. So,
0: so it's like marketing in general, you can't, you can't polish a third. If you have a shitty product, it's gonna be very difficult for you to, to do marketing. Okay. So, step one then is to have a product, uh, like an offering, an offer worth, worth talking about. Now, let's go into that from your experience. And you work across a lot of industries. So it might be difficult to to draw parallels or maybe easy. I don't know. Uh, if you wish, you can pick a specific example or a few. But how would you advise folks to, yeah. to build something remarkable that people would care about, specifically journalists?
1: Sure. So I, I tend to talk about three different characteristics that do tend to cross those lines. Because you're right, it's going to vary. But there are three things. Uh, the first one is emotion. So, and you hear this in a lot of different ways in marketing. People say tell stories, you know, relate to people. We we talk about it in the terms of emotion. Like, why do people care about this? What are they going to feel when they read it? We did a study years ago, I think in like 2013, that we took all the most viral images of that year and then we asked people what emotions were associated with them. It was really surprising actually because positive emotions were the most prevalent, which I did not expect. I kind of thought that everybody would be all about the negative stuff and and uh, be sharing that a lot but the positive content and the surprising content so if you're gonna if you don't even want to think about emotion think about surprise because that's a really common one people like to be surprised by things they want to know things they didn't know before or have their expectations challenged so if you have something like that obviously publishers want it because it's news and that's okay so go ahead
0: let's dive into this because it's very interesting okay. Uh, something that has been talked about in the in the podcast before about this this concept of of surprise of of challenging the status quo. Like you think a certain thing, but what if I told you that this isn't true? Like a few episodes ago, I talked to someone, a copywriter who, who specialized in writing long uh, long form copy for Facebook ads, and we were talking about an example of a language uh, school, and she says, "Did you know that um, it's a it's it's a it's a myth that adults." learn language slower than kids you know it's actually true it's actually mm. a myth i don't remember why she said that but exactly this yeah hmm, right you know, that, hmm, know okay nice to my interest so this is what we are talking about right like a surprise an angle something that is in the in the norm everyone believes everyone you know take that for granted and you you challenge it right and that is usually something that grabs people's attention. You don't have to mention names of your clients if if you can't or if you're not comfortable with, but maybe we can go into examples. Like when you work with clients, how do you advise them to introduce this element into it?
1: That's a great question because people probably hear this and they're like, that's great, but how do I know that something's going to be surprising? And I completely understand wanting to know that. So you we tend to go into things when we come up with ideas, we have a thesis in our minds and you don't want it to be something really stringent because you don't want to be trying to spin the story or, you know, make sure it comes out a certain way, but you're thinking you have a question. I wonder if the data would show X. So you have something in mind where you're thinking, I'm going to set out to to answer my own question about this topic. And to you, it probably would be surprising. You're expecting maybe this data is going to surprise me. I actually don't know the answer. What we have to do, what everybody should do is when you get the data, you have to look at it more objectively. So it might confirm what you thought, and that's great. If it doesn't, it might actually be more surprising. There have been so many times where we look at something, we're like, wow, we had no clue this was going to be how this was going to turn out. But it's fascinating. And that's great.
0: Give me an example.
1: Uh, I'm trying to think. I know, I should have pulled some up. Well,
0: it's okay. one of
1: the one of the examples I've mentioned a lot because I worked on this project, there's like this, this incredible overlap between surprising people, shocking them and like semi validating something they kind of thought was true, but there was never evidence around. This is the sweet spot mm-hmm. that's really hard to find. So uh, we had a client back when I used to work on accounts, I used to be the strategist for clients and they were called travel math. And we, We had people swab parts of airplanes and now I'm sure there's more coverage happening now organically, but we had people swab airplanes to see the germ counts compared to other parts of the plane. So do you know what part of an airplane is the dirtiest?
0: Not the toilets.
1: <laughs> the, right, because you would expect that, right? So probably the, right. it was the tray table.
0: The pilots table. It was the tray table. The tray table. Right.
1: So people see that. They're like, okay, I already kind of assumed that things are probably gross when people are coming out and out these planes and they're touching everything. But it was like to see the numbers and to see what was the most disgusting was the tray table and that quintessentially dirty things. It 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 blew up. Like it was everywhere. And that's that's kind of the sweet spot I'm talking about. If it's surprising, it doesn't have to be completely groundbreaking, but if it shocks people, and even better, if it's kind of validating something people suspected, but nobody really ever set out to prove, that story in particular, it's, it's an anomaly. I'm not going to say that this is everything we do gets like national coverage for years but it i looked like it's still getting mentioned in the media we don't we haven't touched it in years but because nobody did it before and nobody has done it since that's what they have to reference so
0: and uh, what was the link between between that and 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 what they were saying? out of curiosity yeah
1: so and actually that brings me to my next point because (laughs) travel math so they worked in the travel industry and they were all about helping you plan your trip and that could mean like distance between things, how much it's going to cost to drive versus fly. Like it was all kind of like logistics. So when we work with clients, depending on their goals, we also talk to them about what we will refer to as ch- tangential content. So not always specifically what your product or you know what your service is specifically trying to do. Because that might come across as being too branded sometimes. Journalists are like, cool, you're just trying to sell your brand. We don't really care. So we kind of say, well, what is your audience interested in that maybe is relevant to what you're offering them? So in this case, Travel Mass like, yeah, we're trying to help you plan your trips. You want to know, you just want more information about driving and flying and everything. So we would come up with a bunch of ideas around in the more general travel sense where it would make Still makes sense to people if they saw, oh, okay, travel math came up with this report. It makes sense to us. They're a travel company. They're trying to help people plan and and
0: go ahead. <laughs> How do you come up with ideas?
1: How do we come up with ideas? Yeah. So it's been a process. It changes over the years. It's not like we had a, a way from day one that we stuck to because creativity is is an interesting thing, right? It's not something that you can just say like, hey, everyone's gonna be creative today, go. Uh, we we use a lot of different strategies. I think that it's wrong to think there's only one way. So we tell people, you can find inspiration by just finding a data set that hasn't really been analyzed before, right? So that's one way. That, that's the data first, and then you try to figure out the story. You can look at what your competitors have done, what not even your competitors, others in your space have done, and ask yourself, why do you think it's interesting? What questions didn't they answer? What questions does it raise for you? What are people saying in the comments? understand what else could be explored in that area you can see methodologies in the past in any industry that are just cool like oh wow i mean that the germ swabbing thing that was cool to us We're like that hadn't occurred to us the fact that we can literally go and send it to a lab and they tell you i mean that's different so you can be inspired by a methodology in and of itself and then come up with what you think might be an interesting application of it so we have just a document literally of document of data sets that we found over the years of tools we can use to poke around i think what tools use but busting is one of the tools so and they've expanded their offerings i mean even recently offerings. yeah and at that one at the at the base level it's good to just type in a topic and see everything that was engaged with over the last several months or years
0: so you immerse yourself in the industry in a tangential way. You don't like overly focus on a product and what it actually does. You just go one step before that, and, and okay, you're in the travel space. Let's literally look at everything at the minute that's going on in travel space and try to find, as you said, if there is data, survey, or ID that has done the news. Why did it work? What do you yeah. like? What you don't like? Are there any more questions? The comments? Uh, what others have done? I know it's a difficult question to to answer, right? But what I'm trying to get to here is that yeah, there's no like secret formula. It's it just takes, I suppose, a lot of time. But it seems like you are when I say you, I say you and the agency, you are at the at the very beginning of engineering it. You're not at the receiving end where you get given a you know yes. mm-hmm. a half-hour story and you need to pitch it. Like you are at the very start of it as well. That's right? a great
1: point because it's tougher if you don't have your own confidence in what you're pitching. And that goes back to what we were saying before. Like if you are a PR person and you're just handed stuff, I feel for you because it's harder if you don't yourself have confidence that it's going to be interesting. But yes, we tell our clients, we need to be involved from the beginning because we need to have an investment and we, you'll never know hundred percent that something's going to do well, but we did the legwork to increase the probability. And so, like, we use things like seeing if something with a similar method- methodology has been interesting in the past, and seeing what publishers are talking about these days. The way you put it, immersing yourself in the industry is exactly right. I think there are certainly. I'm not telling people don't care about what your customers think. I think that's just a different component of all this. We also do on-site content. We do. We we bucket it into rank-worthy. So things that we put on their site that we want them to rank for. And then we bucket it into link worthy where you might have to broaden out a little bit because like I said, your publisher is going to be like, we don't really want to talk about your software right now. That seems like an ad. We want to talk about...
0: So, sorry if <laughs> cutting continue, but yeah, it's interesting. So rank worthy is, is more the stuff you can rank for yourself. That is, They are closer to the product. It's content pieces that are closer yeah. to the product that if people search for it, they land on your site, they are likely more likely to convert. Yes the link are more what marketers would call top of the funnel type of content, right? Like very somewhat connected to you, but not that much. And therefore it doesn't make a lot of sense to publish it on your site. Uh, Or it does, but what you want to get out of it is not conversion is actual links. Right.
1: It is. And I, we don't, I think a lot of mistakes that marketers make is expecting one project to accomplish all of their goals. You're not going to have, and maybe it, sure. It happens every now and then, but the thing you put on your blog is not going to earn 50 links from fantastic publishers and be completely targeted to the bottom of your funnel and convert it's just we think about it in a bigger picture and see how things work together in order to assist each other because if you're building those links and you're increasing the the technical SEO benefits side of your site that's just going to lift up all of your on-site content which helps it rank in Google's results and it just it cycles through so But yes, for the quote-unquote link-worthy content that we're pitching to publishers, we definitely zoom out. And you don't always have to. There are times I use our client porch.com a lot as an example because they help people find home improvement contractors. So that's pretty straightforward. You're not going to do 50 campaigns about that. That's going to get kind of boring. And there's only so much you can say. But we did one campaign where we used some of their internal data. That's another thing. A lot of companies have internal data that's probably really interesting to people. and They don't even realize it. So you can use, I think for that project, we used Porch's internal data to kind of estimate the costs of different tasks, household tasks for home improvement. And then we surveyed people to see how long or how often they made those changes and then calculated the costs over time of like, what is the most expensive piece of your home that is costing you over the lifespan of the house so what is it oh I'd have to pull it up I'll have to send you the link (laughs) I think
0: but you see that's what works
1: yeah
0: that's what that's what I, I was bound to ask because that's what humans do like you actually create you know, you spark my interest with something that I want to know. It's just, I want to close the loop. I want to understand the answer. And that's why it works. Like, you're compelled to ask why. And now I'm frustrated because I don't know. <laughs> but going back, so let's go back a few steps, right? Okay. So I asked you, how do we engineer a piece that is worth uh, of links from high authority websites? And you kind of isolated this one emotion, which is like the surprise thing. From your experience, is there any other that you've leveraged or do you think surprise is kind of the by far the the most the one you need to nail i
1: think it's going to be the most common i think it's it's really useful and it, it works i think that you can't really limit yourself to the others i think surprise is definitely going to be the most prevalent i think it's really useful because like we said it's it's kind of a natural reaction to things and you want to know more but really any emotion can apply across the board and one of our one of my coworkers made a really interesting point where he said even really dry topics have a lot of emotion packed into them, and you start to unpack them when you, when you understand the problems people have in those industries. Like take finance for example, you say the word finance, people they get bored. A lot of people, mm-hmm. some people like finance. A lot of people are like, all right, we don't care. But money is inherently very emotional. People's the cost of living, wanting to care for their families, needing different jobs. I mean, like there's so much, there's pride, there's fear. A lot of just basic human emotions are tied into money. And in order to get the inspiration for content, that's a good place to start. If you're kind of at a loss, I don't know what emotions to focus on. Ask yourself what the challenges are in those spaces. What are people worried about? What are they asking about? If you already do keyword research for your on-site stuff, look at that see where the patterns are There are a lot of tools out there that help you collect all the different questions that are being asked busting was one of them answer the public's another and you can just get a glimpse of the types of problems people are facing and then you start to see ah yes there are emotions tied into this industry and i think any of them are fair game if you're speaking to them in an interesting and authentic and new way.
0: Okay. So that's a, that's an interesting one. So it, it, but it feels though that the the surprise element is is the thing that encapsulates the other. You you need to frame it in a surprising way in order to get the attention. Or maybe I'm mm-hmm. wrong, but let's see. So from the money, let's give an uh, try to give an example from the money side. Like you would go you're in the finance world. So you go through the questions people ask. You mentioned answerthepublic.com, uh, BuzzFumo. Uh, you can also go on Google and just you know start typing questions and see what are the suggested terms. Uh, you can go down the rabbit hole quite quickly if you look at your own keywords and whatnot. So then once you have this list of questions per se, how do you kind of sort them out like what's the way to 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 start looking at what that could be interesting to answer
1: so when you have that list of questions say you identified like okay the concept of the american dream for example and i'm not even Mm -hmm. just talking about we've done a ton of campaigns on these topics and i can't always talk about the clients i'm going to talk a little more generally but this is stuff that other people put out too so you can ask yourself What does that actually mean? How many people feel like they can achieve it? How many people have enough money to own a certain type of house? You're basically delving into any questions you have related to those emotions. So um, another semi-related example, because money is often tied with jobs. We did a, a project recently about people's pride in their work and what makes them proud to be at work. So that was an example of taking, We just that was the emotion was the key part of that. But it's a common theme that comes up, like job satisfaction. What does mm-hmm. make people stay at a job? It's these questions that help you. you got to just keep asking them, and you start to end up at the heart of something where you have to confirm it hasn't been answered. Or if it has been answered, it hasn't been answered fully and in every kind of way. You can have a lot of different perspectives, right? So we, we start with that list of questions, and we get at, has this been answered? Can it be quantifiably explained is there a side of this that hasn't really been delved into? And then you can start to think, well, what kind of data would help us get at that? So it will, you know, it, it will depend, but that's, that's often the kind of mental strategy we have is it doesn't even just end with the first list of questions. You might take one and say, well, people are afraid that they can't pay their rent. So let's look at the data for that. What are people making across the country? How much of housing costs change, you know? So you kind of think about what data sets supplement those questions so that you can dig further into the answers.
0: And uh, one thing that is very helpful to do that the human brain is is not really used to, because we are, we are wired to recognize what is there, is to look at what isn't there, right? So in the concept of what you said about the American dream and affording houses and, and whatnot, and, and looking at other studies that have been done in the space or the questions that have been answered already, the question is not really what has been what are the ways that have been answered already, but more, what are the ways that this haven't been answered? What are the, maybe there's an industry that, you know, there's no data around. Maybe there is, I don't know, a particular state or, you know, looking at the gaps instead of looking at what is already there. Seems like it's something you do already, but uh, I just wanted to make this point.
1: Yes, that's a great point. And that third factor, so we said one was emotion, the second was thinking more tangentially. The third is newsworthy. And that is exactly right. You don't want to regurgitate what's already out there. You want to tell a new story, or even if it's complementing a story that already already exists, you want to offer a new perspective to it. And the way that we tend to approach newsworthiness is to come up, we either create our own data, so we will use certain methodologies. For example, a lot of people do like social scraping. They'll look to see what people have said around the country on Twitter for a certain hashtag, for example. So you're Mm -hmm. collecting data or you're using data sets that already exist but haven't really been analyzed in a meaningful, straightforward way. People, There's all kinds of data out there and people aren't just using their spare time to analyze it, right? Like the government has a million data sets. And also combining different data sets like that porch example I mentioned, that was their internal data plus survey data to arrive at something more useful but you have to we use data we use these methodologies to come up with something that's inherently new because you're highly increasing your chances of getting media coverage
0: and i think we're touching on the t world like trend right which is not something i'm a big necessarily fan of because i believe they are kind of two types of trends should I say like there's this kind of overly engineered trends that are fads really they're just going to go away you don't know exactly Mm -hmm. when but and they are the ones that are like sticking because they are more down to like systemic changes, cultural changes things that are changing because of new laws and and the state of the world as it is I I mean the basic basic example I don't want to go into cliches but with what's happening with COVID is remote work for example like this is clearly a this is not a fad. This this is very likely to stick because of all mm-hmm. of the systemic changes. Um, so, how do you make how do you spot worthy trends? And I, I I suspect for you, it might not matter that much whether it's a trend or a fad, in a sense, right? Or do you prefer to focus on longer term trends or just short term newsworthiness?
1: Yeah, there's definitely a sweet spot because what you the challenge you come up against is that journalists are tasked with this so when there's breaking news like some people try to jump on breaking news it's really difficult we've tried we've succeeded some of the time but if it's breaking that means it's just days of relevance Mm. and you could be in a great position where a journalist needs something that you have and you were able to put it together quickly enough sometimes if you're a company that happens to have that information yes like definitely get out there and be a source for them that's a little different But if you're trying to come up with content around something that's really trendy, like literally only going to last for days, it's not often worth it. Because by the time you put something valuable together and try to pitch that out, they're already done. They're over the topic. And even with COVID, it's been really interesting because we have successfully pitched projects that we either had to completely pivot because of everything changing like the work example we have clients in that space and it was like well this isn't even the way things used to be or Mm -hmm. this is the way things used to be it is not the way they are now Uh, we haven't able to pitch that because we were able to identify how it's impacting in a longer term these different industries like you said but when you're dealing with shorter things it can be worth it but i would not dedicate an entire strategy around it I think a lot of people use Haro for this reason or Haro, the helper reporter out site, because they're looking to see reporters making direct requests. And then you can say, well, you can interview our founder, or interview somebody who has this information. And that's a little faster. But if you're doing this creating content strategy, there will be a couple of times where you can say, we can get this together very fast and pitch it and it will be worth it. But I don't think it's, you like something you build your entire strategy around
0: okay uh, but it it's it's a nice supplement i suppose right it, it could be a nice push to make to make a story worth it if if it's supported by some sort of a trend or trends right set of trends by just positioning yeah. it the right way so how do you before we go into actually pitching like what type of emails do you send how do you actually make contact do you have any ways to recognize to look at trends like do you use any tools to do that like do you have any methods
1: yeah, so we actually just did a, a partnership campaign with Exploding Topics. That's a relatively new tool. Mm-hmm. And I've noticed that the topics that they have are a little more longer term. They Some of them I hadn't even heard of, which is interesting because they're in specific industries. I'm like, what is this? But it's like a piece of software or something that's trendy. But sometimes you see there are things that are longer term trends. You see this in like fashion and and food, things that last a lot longer, like intermittent fasting, for example. Like, that's trendy, but that's something that people have been talking about for a long, a decent amount of time, you know, in the years category. So, yeah, that could be worth doing something on. And if you can catch it at the right time, which is, I believe, why that tool is basically developed to help you catch those things early, then you can ride that wave longer rather than just catching it for the two days and then it's no longer popular. So, tools like that, Google Trends is a, a classic one where you can just see what in general is trending up. In your industry, I'm trying to think if there's anything else. We do it a little more specifically, like if you're using Buzzsumo, just seeing what kind of stories are popping up. If you do have tabs on different publications that you want to be in, it does not make sense to see what they're talking about. And if you see that trending in a different direction.
0: Yeah. Uh, There's a great analogy about trends and surfing the wave is if you're too too ahead of the wave of the trend, you will be crushed by it. If you're too far away from it, you will miss it. So there is a kind of a sweet spot in the middle where you don't want to be too soon, you don't want to be too late, and it's definitely touch and go. It's 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 not as you said. It's it's you can't guarantee any success out of it. It's it's you need to ship it and see what happens. Okay, and so we've go ahead.
1: No, I was just gonna add that you can always, if you create something, you can always flag it for another time to promote it again. So there are times when maybe a holiday or something like newsworthy happens when you're like, oh, this is actually relevant once again, or even more relevant than before, and then bring that back up. Sometimes people just, they promote something and they just leave it alone. But that's something I also recommend, because you're right, you never really know. And if you have it in the back of your mind, okay, we created this, it's interesting, maybe something will happen later where it makes sense for us to re-promote it.
0: Yeah, that's a very good point. And and yeah, there's this feeling, you know, when you work on something for so long, looking at the numbers, looking at the stories for so long that it's like, you're you're kind of sick of it, but but the market, the people out there have probably never heard of it in the first place. So you shouldn't really be afraid of just resharing it, republishing it if you didn't go the first time, right?
1: Exactly. Yeah, you're sick of it because you've been looking at it every day for two months. Yeah. There's a quote <laughs> yeah. about
0: it: um, "Don't stop publishing content until or talking about something until your accountant is sick of it." So you know, <laughs> even if you're sick of it, your employees are sick of it, your market is sick of it. If if yeah, if your accountant is not sick of it, keep going. Um, so we've talked about emotions, specifically the surprising element, uh, looking at tangential stuff instead of just your own product-related content, and newsworthiness as another thing. So I think we've covered pretty well how to create a story using your own data, outside data, slicing things differently, looking at where things are not, what are the gaps. Now we have a few minutes to talk about how to package that and pitch that to people. So share with us some you know pointers on how to make sure that when you send an email or contact a journalist, whatever way. Uh, that you have the highest chance of of getting a reply at least or being opened in the first place
1: sure so this has always been very important to us as it's been a lot of our service offering and we've literally years ago we did our first publisher survey where we literally asked writers the way that they wanted to be pitched and we rebooted it in 2019 so last year and we asked 500 journalists a bunch of questions related to this and we already formed a process around it based on responses we've gotten. And fundamentally, it comes down to two things. The first and the most important is that you're doing your research about that particular writer. Because the biggest pet peeve cited in this survey was I'm still getting so many irrelevant pitches. People to this day are still getting a ton of irrelevant pitches. And I know this is true because myself, I'm not a writer, but I'm getting pitched for services constantly And nine times out of 10, I'm not even the right person for them. The times that I am, the pitch is clearly a template, and they don't actually, they didn't even actually look at our company or see why we're a good fit. And nobody's gonna give you the time of day if you get that kind of an email. But this is still happening, and it's still so prevalent that you just realize this is what you're up against, but also that there's an opportunity to do better. And if you do, you can break through that. So a lot of what we talk about is, at the very beginning, you have this great piece of content. You probably, at the very beginning of creating that content, had in mind maybe where you want it to go. Hopefully. That's a good strategy to have when you're creating it, is thinking, who am I writing this for? Once you have the idea, who is it going to appeal to? And that'll help you keep focused on that audience. But you not only need to understand the publisher, which that was the second pet peeve for people, that people weren't actually understanding the publisher that they worked for. hmm You don't even just want the publisher in your head. That's a start. But every publisher is different. Some of them have staff writers and contributing writers and freelancers and editors. And who makes those decisions is going to be different. And who you should pitch, maybe contributing writers, only publish there once every three months. Your odds of getting them to write about you in that one slot are going to be way lower than a staff writer who publishes every day. Then it's what is their beat? And I didn't know this until later on. I wasn't directly involved with pitching in my earlier, my career was on the creative side. And it was interesting to learn that the beat that somebody has can be more specific than you realize. I think one example was somebody I'm making up what this vertical was, but it was something with psychology. So like sports and psychology, for example, people would think that they just covered sports because they talked about sports or they're like, no, it's a little more nuanced than that. I have an overlap of two different topics that I'm examining in my column. So a lot of people do like 25% of the work. They have a publisher. They find a writer that's published some relevant stuff and they pitch them. And that's it. The legwork up front will help you a lot because people will know that you put in the work. They'll understand what based on the way that you structure your pitch, they'll see, oh, they didn't just randomly pick me because I write for this publisher. They picked me because they've read what I've written. They've seen maybe on my Twitter or somewhere how I said to pitch me and the type of stuff I'm looking for. And they understand the nuance of what I'm trying to do. So that, before you even write a word, this is a lot of the work. And it does come down to, you can use um, some tools to help you, like BuzzStream, we've worked with BuzzStream. So there's a lot of nuance that you can uncover from either their past stories or their Twitter accounts about what they're trying to achieve through writing for these certain publications. And if you don't understand that, they're going to sense that in your pitch. They're going to know that you didn't put in the legwork and that you don't understand the complexities of what they're trying to do. And they're going to more likely just pass over you. So a lot of the upfront work is this part of the process. It's researching the writers and understanding exactly what they write about. Because in your pitch, you're going to have to explain why your content is going to be valuable to their audience. And you can't do that, honestly, unless you understand who they're writing to and why and what they're writing about. So before you even write right. a word, you have to know this.
2: And it's
0: like the the old cliche, but I think it's pretty much accurate, which is it's much better to reach out to three, four people instead of 200, as long as you're actually reaching out to them, knowing exactly who they they are. I mean, the example that comes to mind, just to talk about US politics a bit, is you don't reach out to a journalist in Fox News the same way that you reach out to someone in CNN. Right, yeah,
1: so even if you, even just the way that you call out the insights in your project is going to be different. I'm not even talking about personalization to the person. Like, yes, that's definitely going to change, but even the way that you frame... Your project which i guess a, a relevant analogy would be like if you're creating a resume and you're applying to different types of jobs you might not necessarily send this send the same type of resume or cover letter to every type of job you're applying to you have to tailor it to the people you're pitching and that applies even to what you're planning to highlight in your project to that person
0: and so in your own projects when you pitch to uh, for 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 the stuff you've built with your brand, with the the brands, I know it's a difficult question to 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 answer. But how many journalists publishers do you typically reach out to? Like, what's the, the norm? <laughs> That's, yeah, for you? I
1: don't. It's hard to say because we kind of we we allow the promotion specialists to get a feel for how long they think the project is viable. And by that, I mean, we have a certain process, which might help answer your question where we start by pitching the exclusive. So this is a way to get higher tier publishers more interested in what you have to say, because going back to something being newsworthy, if you're telling them we're pitching this to you as an exclusive, because we think this is a really great fit for you, they're go- it's going to be more appealing to them to know that they're going to be the first ones to even talk about it. So the first part of our promotions process, which can take anywhere from a couple days to a couple weeks, is securing that first piece of coverage because it's probably going to be the best coverage we get. And then after that, it's a matter of you can build a list of however many people you think are gonna be a good fit. Because anybody in promotions knows it's not like everybody turns around and publishes it, right? It's not a huge percentage.
2: Right. So,
1: you know, if you have 30 other people, you're like, hey these are all sites in a wide range. Some are going to be more national. Some are going to be way more niche, but whatever your goal is for that, if you, if you based on the project have a list of people you want to publish after you secure the exclusive and they get to run it, then you pitch everybody else. And obviously that's going to have to be in spurts because you can't write these types of pitches over, you know, in a second, they take a little bit of time and you had to have done that research at the beginning. But we, we base it on, you know, are people still opening these emails? Are we getting replies? Is, is this syndicating naturally from other sites? And they get a sense of this is still interesting to people. The way that we do it is by pitching the exclusive first. So it allows publishers a little bit of an extra benefit. Because like I said, the newsworthiness is a big part of this. So if you're able to tell them you're going to be the first one to cover this, You're more likely to get their attention, and this is a good strategy for getting the highest tier publisher possible from the get-go. So we start with that, which takes anywhere from a couple days to a couple weeks. So you're not pitching a lot of people in that period. You might pitch somebody, they don't reply to you, you pitch somebody else. Once you secure the exclusive, then you can pitch basically anybody else that you think might be interested with in, in your content or relevant to your content. And that could be any number of people in a different range of publications. So maybe you have like a few more nationals you want to try hitting. And then you have like a wide range of just middle tier, more niche publications that are more targeted to your, your audience, whatever makes sense for your project and then pitch them. We typically pitch over at least a month's period in general. So it, it will range, but okay. you know,
0: no that makes that makes sense so thanks for being being, being so detailed about it so yeah pitching an exclusive is a very sounds like a very good idea and again once you have a good product to pitch and once you know the people you're pitching to and uh, understand the the nuances it becomes much easier to get links to go, going back to what we described, to get backlinks to get authority to get mentions and then being in a relationship this way Amanda, you've been a pleasure. Thanks so much for going through this step by step with me. Apologies, uh, people listening. There is, there's been a bit of technical issues throughout, but hopefully you shouldn't really have felt them because hopefully we've, we've done a good job, uh, masking them. What are the top three resources you'd recommend? Listeners today.
1: So I mentioned BuzzSumo earlier. I think that's a great tool, for, especially for coming up with content ideas. We use it pretty often. I use Keyword Surfer a lot. It's a great Chrome plugin for doing keyword research. Keywords Everywhere, I love to, but that one's paid now, which is still great. But if you need a free one, Keyword Surfer is a good option for volume. And then I have to shout out to the Women in Tech SEO group because I just joined today because I joined their mentorship program and within minutes I was overwhelmed by how supportive that group is. So if you are a woman in this industry, I highly recommend checking that out. Uh, Yeah.
0: Nice. And uh, if people want to reach out to you, if they have any questions, how do they do that?
1: Sure. So you can even email me directly at amanda at frac.tl. So (laughs) it's fractal. It's not fractal.com. It's frac.tl. And that's also our website. So you can check us out there. I also have a a podcast as well, but it's specifically about helping content marketers determine their ROI and get buy-in for their work. So if that's of interest to anybody listening, uh, you can check me out over there too. But yeah, feel free to email me directly or find me on Twitter at Melanda, M-I-L-L-A-N-D-A.
0: Nice. Again, uh, once again, thanks so much for, for your time and for sharing all of this uh, piece of wisdom. I think everyone got a lot of value out of it. So thank you.
1: Thank you so much for having me on the show. It's been fun.
2: quickly skim yours amy said also loving the new content that's coming from you it feels really lovely candle said i like your writing a lot it really resonates there's so much bullshitter there's good to touch the authentic and chloe said where is the i fucking love this email button brilliant i hope you subscribe you'll be joining more than fourteen thousand subscribers at this stage which is crazy it's the size of a small stadium anyway thank you so much